Welcome to the Experts Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thanks for listening. In a previous episode, we spoke to Joan Allman, who is the executive director of the Alliance for Childhood, on the crisis in our kindergartens, that free play has been disappearing from the kindergartens, but play is equally changing for our older children and teenagers. Ms. Allman, thank you for the opportunity to talk to you again. It's my pleasure. Delighted to be back. This time we want to focus on older kids. There are two beginning questions. And what is the developmental role of play in adolescence? And should we be worrying about how it is evolving in our society? Well, I think we should be worrying, but I'll leave that for the moment and talk a little bit about adolescence. Then Please. Then we can go into more detail about that. First, maybe I should say this about play. When we speak about play in the Alliance and for many people who are play experts, we're talking about something that is initiated by the individual and directed by the individual, and it's intrinsically motivated. So that means it comes bubbling up from within, not because somebody's assigned us to do something. We get to direct the ideas, and they serve some inner need within us. And it's a very basic part of human life, play, all through life, including adulthood. So today we want to speak about older children and adolescents, but we should bear in mind that from birth onward, play is a fundamental activity of the human being. It shapes the mind, it shapes the feelings and social life, it certainly helps with the body and keeping us trim and in good shape. Play just serves developmentally at every level. And typically we tend to think play is not very important at any age and certainly not important in adolescence. So we aim our youngsters towards sports and other adult organized activities and we really get nervous if they want to do something like skateboarding or other activities that are very much their own thing to do. I think it's been a major step in this country to have skateboard parks, for instance, and acknowledge that young people want to do this on their own. Some of it's competitive, but a lot of it is just for the sheer fun of doing it. So, frankly, it horrifies me. When I look at it, I think, how do mothers bear it when their children are out there doing this? But it is a form of play, and it's something that the young people have come to very much on their own. Just as for years they really were into shoots and ladders and different forms of play that spoke to them, that appealed to them, that strengthened their social connections and also their, just their own sense of self. And they have far too little of that. Maybe I'll just give one example and then I'll, I'll stop for a moment. Sure, sure. There was a situation up in Connecticut a couple summers ago that you might have followed. It was in the national press where a group of teenage boys took over a vacant lot and created a softball field for themselves. Actually, I think it was wiffle ball even. And the neighbors in this very affluent community really protested. They did not want these youngsters taking over this field and kind of organizing their own play. One thing for them to go off to organize sports, but not for them to organize their own play. And, of course, I grew up in an era when we always organized our own baseball games and so on. We didn't do as many organized sports as children do now. But the community forced these youngsters out of this field and kind of forbade them from organizing their own play like that. And I just think that's a huge shame, the sort of entrepreneurial spirit that blossoms so strongly in adolescence, the need to negotiate and work on things socially, the need to stimulate their own minds creatively. All of these are fostered through play. And it's interesting because as you say that, one of the things is how we've changed where people can play. So these kids tried to prepare a playground, and we took that away from them. That's right. That's interesting. Right. 
in a poor neighborhood, people might not have minded. They might even have thought, oh, this is great, alternative to gang life. But this was an affluent neighborhood. And they, the neighbors did not want this. I read an interesting study that looked at how kids played based on the size of their backyards and based on their access to safe streets and, and to playgrounds. And one of the terms that came up, which is a spinoff of what you're saying, concerns about neighborhood safety as a potential barrier to children's physical activity. The term that came up was we've, we've grown into called the stranger danger, and we're afraid to be out in, in an open field. And these kids were in a good neighborhood and they tried to undo that. Fascinating. Sad, right. but fascinating. Right. And when you look at the FBI statistics, what you see is that stranger danger is way down the list of real threats to children. When something terrible happens to a child, it is most often, unfortunately, somebody the family knows, somebody who's in the family or a family friend. There isn't that much risk from pure strangers abducting a child or harming a child but the perception of stranger danger in this country is huge, and it gets in the way very much of letting children and teens even roam freely and play in the way that past generations took for granted. But that was what you did as children and teens. You roamed, you were on your bike, you could go miles. Parents didn't worry too much, especially if you were out in a little crowd. And really, relatively little harm came to children compared to the harm that we now experience of children. Sometimes people say children today are under house arrest. They're encouraged to stay in. They're encouraged to be in front of their screens all the time. The average American child from age 8 to 18 spends over seven hours a day with their media outlets. And that's a lot of time. And that's seven hours that they're not also doing physical activity and burning off calories and building exactly. up muscle strength and all that sort of thing. Exactly. They spend very little time in intensive physical activity. I think one study showed it was less than an hour a week outside of school phys ed or something. Most children really don't get out there and play on their own any longer. It's just measured in minutes per week at this point. Now, one of the key elements about playing with other people, and one assumed, I mean, there's, there's a type of play, I should say, there's a type of play that's perfectly legitimate when you're playing, doing something yourself. That's fine. It's exploring. Mm -hmm. But playing is also learning social skills. It's learning exactly. proper competition. And in situations that human beings are involved with, not just video games. So this is a, a very key part of the adolescent process as well. I'd love your thoughts on this. Yes. We've talked to a lot of business people, and I'd love to see a serious study on this. We've just done it informally, where over and over we're told that one of the big problems they have with their young employees now is that they don't know how to work with other people. They've lost their ability for social negotiation, let's call it. And this is something that we always developed through play and did it right up through adolescence. And we have this illusion that by being online and doing all this social networking, oh, our young people are so social today, but it's a very artificial form of social. Put them together in a room and they actually don't know how to interact or how to work together. In many cases, obviously, I'm being a little bit too broad with my brush at the moment. But in general, young people are having a hard time today with real-life social situations. Because other people are setting the social scene. The That's designers right. of the video games are setting the scene, not the people themselves. That's right. And even with things like Facebook, it's a, you know, it's a very limited social interaction. And if you don't like what's happening, you just turn it off. But in real life, it's not so easily done. We have to learn how to negotiate with one another, and that's what play always did. You'd get into fights and fusses, but you didn't want the game to end, so you'd find some way to work it through. And that's what our young people are lacking in today.
So the, the spectator notion of years of just watching television has evolved a little bit into the interactive notion because you can interact with the electronic games, but it's still not interacting with people. That's right. That's right. We're really depriving children very much of basic things that they need, especially in the social area, but also in the physical area. And just now there was a major story in Newsweek about the creativity crisis. I've been rereading that and going back to some of the research on it. And what this is showing is that very well-established test of human creativity that's been around for 50 years and has been correlated with all sorts of things like they've watched children who and their scores and then followed them over decades to see if the children with the highest creativity scores also have shown greater accomplishment in patents, in leadership, in being university presidents, in many different ways that they could show their creative leadership, and have found a high correlation between children's creativity and later life achievement. And what they're seeing now is that since 1990, the scores on the creativity test for children have been going down. So whereas they've been rising for decades, now they're, they're going down. And I think that's, again, one more manifestation of not having enough time for child-initiated play, which is a highly creative activity. When you said child-initiated play, it's also group agreeing to end play. So if a kid is playing on a video game and gets tired, he turns off. But if he's with a group of kids, the rest of them are going to say, no, we want to play more. Why are you leaving in the middle of the game or, or whatever? It's an That's interesting right. difference. It's a big difference. And a different example that often comes to my mind was out of my playing with friends, playing softball. And one season, one of our, my friends broke her leg. And there was no question that she would have to sit out for the season and not play. We just arranged it that she batted and I ran for her. And those are the kinds of things children are used to doing when left to their own devices in play. But again, it's a different thing when you're online or you don't have an opportunity to play. You don't learn to be flexible and work these things out together. What about the violence and this overt sexuality that we see in so much of the video gaming? It, it, to me, it's frightening. Yes, to me also. And I think the data is increasingly strong showing that it does have an impact on children. It may not cause somebody to go right out and kill somebody, but you can't digest that much violence without it affecting your own thinking or your own emotional makeup, that you're, I think, more likely to be quick on the trigger in your reactions to people, even if you don't have an actual trigger in your hand, than if you're immersed in a more slow-paced life. I mean, the amount of violence children digest through these video games exceeds anything, even in the most dangerous neighborhoods. Children are not exposed to the amount of violence that your typical child is exposed to who's playing these video games. It just distorts the mind. It distorts the way we perceive the world. And that's really a problem. Typically, what children do for sorting out things that come their way is to play it out. And so a lot of children's play has become a lot more aggressive and violent, in part because of what they're taking in through the screen the video games or even just normal television and movies. I saw a statistic, and I can't prove that this is accurate, but the thought was chilling, and it said that a 15 or 16-year-old is much more likely in our society now to commit a violent crime than is a 30 or 40-year-old. Hmm. I can't give you hard data that right. that's true, but when I heard it, it made me stop. Right. It made me stop and think. And right. The way kids are playing now, it's, a, it's an under-acknowledged source of socialization for our kids. We don't recognize or we're not giving enough emphasis that this is how they're getting socialized. Right. Well, let's 
say it's a primitive form of socialization. Primitive. Yes. You know, you're around a little child, two-year-old, let's say, he gets upset. What does he do? He lashes out. And, you know, you correct and you guide him towards more appropriate social behavior, but you're not surprised that a two-year-old lashes out. But by the time a youngster is 15 or 16, they should have those kinds of things under control and have a range of ways of expressing upset. But what happens with these video games is it just reinforces that kind of gut level, very basic level of I'm frustrated, I'm upset, I'm angry, I'm lashing out. So what do we as parents, what do we do about it? How do we intervene? How do we break the pattern? Well, first of all, I think parents have every right to limit green time for children. And I would start it very young. In fact, I wouldn't start children on screen time when they're too young because you build up habits and then it's much, much harder for them to freely break the habit. If I had my way for the first five, six, seven years, I would not expose children on a regular basis to screen time. Not television, not films. You know, the occasional treat or whatever is one thing, but it's like feeding children sugar every day and then being surprised that they have a strong sugar habit. When you start children young on things, the habits go very, very deeply in, and you're really curtailing their freedom later for finding a healthy balance for themselves. So I would definitely limit screen time intensively. The Pediatrics Association says no screen time under the age of two, and I would say after that very limited until the children are seven, and then still limited. So many parents feel that, you know, screen time is, if you pardon my saying it this way, it's like a God-given right that every child is entitled to as much screen time as they want. But I view it more like the liquor cabinet in the home, that most parents have some alcohol in the home, but it's off limits to children. Screen time for adults is a very different experience than screen time for young children. So I would be much, much more cautious and careful about exposing children to what comes through the media than most families are today. And that goes really into adolescence, although one has a lot less control over it then. But there are still ways that parents always have had to deal with how long do children stay on the telephone, for instance, when they're teenagers. Well, now we have to deal with how long can children play video games. Parents tell me, like on a Saturday, their child will be in the room playing eight hours a day if they let them. So what are the reasonable limits? And I just would get the children off those screens after an hour or so when they're teenagers and say, all right, time to do some chores, time to go out and play with friends, time to do something else now. Because these things are highly, highly addictive. And in some countries, they're dealing with that, acknowledging it and dealing with it more fully than we are. We don't like to acknowledge how addictive screens are to our children. Internet addiction and game-playing addiction has been discussed I will, in the mental health field in the last couple of years. Yes, I agree with you. It's starting to get some real uh, credibility. Right. Well, in places like Korea, they have clinics for youngsters who are addicted. Now, I don't know if their youngsters are more addicted than ours or if they're just more awake to the problem than we are. But it is a serious problem. And I'm not an expert on addiction, but my guess is if you get children addicted to screen time when they're young, even if you curb the screen time, they now have a tendency towards addictive behaviors. They're used to quick pleasure that screens give, and it becomes much harder to avoid other addictive behaviors as they grow up. And some of the pleasure is also in the sexual confusion about the proper relationships between sexes because some of these video games that I've seen at, the female characters, they're, they're dressed in a way I would not let my daughters leave the house. That's right. And the male figures in it are really violent towards the female figures in many of these games. I remember a friend of mine whose daughter was entering adolescence saying, 
what terrifies me is she's going to be going out with boys who play these video games for hours a day. Then how do they translate that into reasonable behavior towards girls, towards dates? Somewhere in there, those images are there. And I'm not saying that means they go and chop a woman to pieces or rape her or do something really horrible, but it's hard to get all of those images out of you. These things do have an effect on us. Now, some of the games are obviously, and I've not seen all the games, but I would assume some of them are much more benign. But the other element here is just the playing a game alone, depriving oneself of actual interaction with other human beings. I think that's a very significant part of this, and that's where the parents have to almost deprive their children of the video games in order to enhance the other aspects of growth. Yes. And, you know, one area that has really been lost from many children in the face of this video explosion is going outdoors and exploring nature. And I've read many accounts of people bringing, let's say, inner city children out into nature or others who are not used to being in nature, and it takes them a little while, but then they really get attuned to it, and it creates big changes in their lives. One thing that parents can do in weaning children off of the intensity of their video and television experiences is to organize little groups going out into nature, camping out, doing things, working with other families if you're not comfortable doing it just within your own family at first. But really getting children out into nature, I think it's one of the great healing processes that we've got in life, is to be in nature. It so expands the world, and I think that is so critical. We talk about these types of situations, and it goes back to, oh, it's always embarrassing when you can't remember. He played Archie Bunker. I can't remember his oh, name. Oh, okay. I, I know who you mean, but I can't think of his name either. One of his children died of a drug overdose, and he did a television commercial. And I thought it was one of the best I had ever seen. He leaned, Carol O'Connor, Yeah. and he leaned in front of the camera, and he looked, and he said, do you know how to change your child's life? Step into your kid's life. Don't mm -hmm. be afraid. And I think that's what we're talking about here. Mm -hmm. You bring up so many good points about the role of play and the role of our kids are, are sexually mature as, as their bodies are, much younger than they are emotionally mature. Mm -hmm. And we need to help them learn how to play. And this is a part of, of parenting. Fascinating work that you do. Well, thank you. We, we were pleased to see that play is coming back into people's awareness again. And we've seen several studies now where parents are asked about play, where the parents clearly get it. They know how important it is. They're very distressed that play is disappearing from children's lives. And the problem is they don't know what to do to bring it back in. So I think that's something that we all need to be focusing in on more. How can we help parents really bring play back, even into the lives of adolescents? And this is where often outdoor activities that are not competitive sports, but whether it's hiking, swimming, kayaking, it brings out the playfulness in us as long as it's not a competitive sport. And I'm not trying to speak against competitive sports, but they are different than play. Absolutely, absolutely. Joan Allman is the executive director of the Alliance for Childhood, and we are talking about the importance of play in the teenagers and adolescents. This is a very broad subject critically important to the development of our children and ultimately to the survival of our society. Thank you so much for being with us. This has been very interesting. You're most welcome. And can I just direct people towards our oh, website yes, please for more do. information? It is alliance for childhood, one word, dot org. Thank you.